Hello, this is Jim Stein, your host for New Books in Mathematics. Our guest today is Rafi Grinberg, author of The Real Analysis Lifesaver. If ever there were a course that needs a book like this, analysis is unquestionably it. And I only wish that Rafi had gotten into the Wayback Machine and delivered me a copy when I was taking this course more than half a century ago. I got a C plus and almost certainly would have done a lot better if I'd had this book. Rafi, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you, Jim, for having me on. It's really exciting. Well, it's a pleasure on my part, too. What made you decide to write this book? It's a good question. Well, <laughs> your, your story about getting a C-plus, not so far from mine. I think I got a B-minus in real analysis. Uh, <laughs> and lest that destroy my credibility here, you know, why did I write a textbook on this class I got a B-minus in? I actually think that, you know, for someone who's struggled to learn the material the first time, kind of made me um, the perfect candidate to be someone to teach it to other people. Because by virtue of struggling with it and really trying to relearn it multiple times over the course of my college career, it kind of made me realize what are the individual things that people get hung up on? What are the most difficult parts of the course? And what are the epiphanies I had to help me overcome those roadblocks? So the way that I wrote the book and what made me the most excited about writing it was to write it from the perspective of a learner, to know, here's what you're going to get tripped up on. Let me preempt that and and explain the clarification or the distinction that you're lacking, right? Here's the part that I know is going to be confusing, and so I'm going to fill in the missing step, right, that will just make it click in your brain. Um, so that's why I got most excited about writing it and actually became my senior thesis project when I was a senior at Princeton. Um, over the years since then, I revised it, added more content to it, of course, went through the whole publishing process. But while I was going through the publishing process, they were already using it as a course packet at Princeton, essentially as a supplementary textbook for the exact same real analysis class that I had taken when I was a freshman. You know, I had exactly the same experience. I found that having struggled with the material made me a better teacher because I knew what obstacles the students were going to face, whereas I know that there are a lot of people who just get it immediately. They teach it and they don't see what the uh, why students have a problem with it. So I can certainly relate to what it is that you did. But anyway, do you think this book helps the student too much? How do you see the trade-off between guiding students through a proof versus forcing them to fill in the missing steps on their own? I think that's one of the age-old questions of teaching, basically, is how do you strike this balance between giving, holding someone's hand versus letting them go? You know, that's why the, the Lifesaver is a particularly good title, because I, as I mentioned in the book, right, sometimes the best way to learn is just being thrown in the deep end and having to figure out things for yourself. And when you figure out things for yourself, you remember it in a way that nothing else can make you remember it, right? You know, there's one thing to be held your hand and go through it, and then you have to work really hard to memorize it. But if you figure it out something on your own, you're never going to forget it. So I really acknowledge that that's a, a strong pedagogical method. At the same time, as I described in the introduction, right, being thrown in the deep end only works if you don't drown right away. And that's why you need a lifesaver, right, to kind of hold you afloat so you can learn how to swim on your own but still have something to hold on to. And I think that's the right balance that I want to strike is basically if you throw someone in the deep end, they don't know how to swim, right, they're basically at risk of giving up because what you hear from a teacher or from a textbook or even from the problems you're working on is essentially meaningless. It doesn't mean anything to you if you don't understand the fundamental basics. And you just keep hearing the same explanations over and over again without really knowing how they fit together. And that just leads to frustration. And frustration leads to giving up. And, you know, as I'm sure it was with your class, about half my class dropped out within the first few weeks because they were just so frustrated. So I want to be able to strike that balance, help people learn for themselves, but at the same time just make sure it never gets so frustrating that they give up. And I think the best way to do that is to make sure that the new information that gets presented in every subsequent theorem or definition or whole chapter fits into the existing body of knowledge you have, right? When you learn something new, it's very easy to just let it gloss over and say, okay, there's a new fact, right? But you don't really process it. You don't really fit it in to the existing body of knowledge you have. And that's, I think, one of the key features of the book is every time you learn a new definition or theorem, right, it, the book stops and says, wait, how is this different from what you learned before? How is this specific definition relate to the other definition for a different topological feature, right? How does this theorem interact with the other theorem you learned? And it takes a time to let you do that processing that I think leads to a lot less frustration and burnout. Yeah, I certainly think that's true. And one of the things that I think helps the students is the fact that you used an informal tone with a sense of humor that makes it different from other books. But why did you decide to write it this way? 
<laughs> I think the sort of the, the most, the secret to being a good teacher, or a good educator is just to bring your own personality to the table, right? It's very easy to think that you should just be a robot, transmit information, but really students relate to someone who they can relate to, right? Who feels like a real person. They enjoy humor and anecdotes and just having a real personality. And I think, you know, I've had some excellent teachers in the past throughout my life who, who've done that. Um, but textbooks are, you know, especially lacking sometimes in that respect, you know, writers just assume they need to write in this sort of authoritarian voice. Um, but I really wanted to write my book as a teacher would speak it out loud because it makes it less boring, makes it more relatable. Um, but there's also the sort of the secret behind it, which is when you have jokes, you know, that people know that they can expect jokes to be coming or interesting anecdotes, right? They read more closely. And I think learning proof-based math is all about learning to read more closely, right? It's not about skimming over and just saying, okay, I memorize this thing for later, right? It's about actually understanding every word, every step of every proof. Um, and I really want to help students get into that habit. You know, I think that's uh, I think that's an excellent attitude, and it's one that uh, it took me a little while to evolve as a teacher. But one of the things that I pride myself on is when I got my teacher reviews early on. Somebody said it's like watching Woody Allen teach math, and I think that's <laughs> you know I think that's to a certain extent what you want to strive for. What I'd yeah. like to do right now is I'd like to start working the way through the book, and because mm -hmm. those students uh, who have taken analysis or those who don't don't or who haven't should realize that it's a very intense subject and if I were to do a thorough treatment or if we were to do a thorough treatment of your book it would take us four uh, at least four interviews rather than just one yeah. so we may only get so far but I urge all people who are interested get this book because it's really helpful and I think you'll see that as uh, Rafi and I start going through uh, going through the book so one of the first questions that I'd like to uh, address is the fact that you used, as did I half a century ago, what's referred to as Baby Rudin, uh, Rudin's principle of mathematical analysis. You wrote yep. your book around it, but can it be used? Can your book be used as a supplement for other books? Yeah, absolutely. It, the book is intended to be a supplement for any introductory real analysis class. It lines up most closely with that book, Baby Rudin, The Principles of Mathematical Analysis. That's the one that I used. But that Rudin is sort of known as like the standard bearer for what to cover in a curriculum. Part of the reason I wrote the book is that I found that Rudin worked really well as a reference book, but not as well as an educational text, right? So he leaves out a lot of steps in the proofs. He skips over a lot of things that students would need to learn the first time, including how to do proofs in the first place. Um, but it's really helpful is just saying, you know, if you're teaching a standard real analysis class, here's what you should cover in what order. And I try to stick to that order because that's the order that most people follow their first time through the material. Yeah, and one of the th one of the drawbacks to Rudin, which, as I said, I've probably taught this course 20 times, Rudin draws no pictures. Pictures are incredibly <laughs> helpful. I'm glad your book yep. has pictures. Yeah, me too. Okay. Uh, you start off by describing the five basic types of proof. What are these? Yeah, I think there's certainly more, but these are the five that I decided to focus on and really build this skill from the bottom up. So I start by explaining a proof by counterexample, which is just you provide one counterexample to disprove a rule. Um, the, you can also do proof by contrapositive, which is proving the opposite in the opposite order. A proof by contradiction is the third one I introduce. It's basically saying, if you assume that this fact you're trying to prove is false, show that basically the laws of the universe break down, right? You end up with some contradiction, like one equals zero or one plus one equals five. Um, and that shows that you can't assume that the result is false because then the rest of math wouldn't be true. And as I mentioned in the book, proof by contradiction is sort of considered by mathematicians to be like uh, a last resort, right? If you can't prove something directly step by step, try proof by contradiction. But oftentimes, once you've done the proof by contradiction, you can see sort of what the crux is, what the, the key steps of the proofs are, um, and then rewrite it directly. So that's the last one that I introduce. Is a, I call it a direct proof, but I try to do the direct proof in two steps. And I say every mathematician thinks about it this way. They don't just think they're going to write up some nice formal answer from the beginning. First, they're going to puzzle over it. That's step one, is just break it all down, figure out what are the definitions you need to be using, what are the other theorems you need to be citing and relying upon, um, and figure out really what is the crux of the problem, what is the, the big sort of aha moment. When you solve that aha moment, now your work is all in a jumbled order. And step two is writing it up in a nice linear way that doesn't have all these extraneous steps. Step two is kind of making it the way that Rudin would write it, right? Very clear and concise and step by step um well very concise 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> missing a few of the steps. <laughs> and I left out one, the, the fifth one is just proof by induction, which I think some people are introduced to in high school, but sort of it's in such a cursory way that, that it's really necessary to, to relearn it and make sure you got proof by induction down. Okay. Now, almost all books on analysis start off with set theory. And I think that the basic simplicity of set theory, which always occurs early in analysis, might lull students to sleep, as it's not really what analysis is all about. And they've seen this stuff before. I think set theory is actually a good way to apply the proof techniques that you just learned to something that's simple or familiar, right? You're, you're, for me, real analysis, because it's people's first introduction to proof-based math most of the time, is it's the first time they're learning how to do proofs. So instead of applying these techniques you learned about how to write a proof to stuff that's new and already different, why not apply it to something at least you're familiar with it? So that's why I like starting with set theory. And I think the second part of it is that it actually is very foundational. A lot of the theorems from set theory get used over and over and over throughout the course of the book. You really have to know them inside and out. And so it's sort of just levels of playing field depending on people, the different amounts of background people had in math when they were in high school or in college or even before grad school. Make sure everyone's on the same page. Yeah, I think that's true. And then after you've gotten through with set theory, then you start introducing least upper bounds and things get rough. The least upper bound <laughs> property of real numbers is difficult for students to grasp. And how do the integers, the rationals, and the reals differ with respect to the least upper bound property? Yeah, it's a great question because for me, it's really fundamental to what real analysis is about. And that's why one of the first proofs in the book um, is a proof that Q, the set of all rational numbers, has what we call holes, essentially subsets of rational numbers that are missing a bound. So, for example, you can create a subset and you think, you know, this least upper bound, the thing that should be right on top of it is a square root of two. But there is no such thing as a square root of two um, in the set of rational numbers. And that's actually the real motivator for working with real numbers. So to me, the least upper bound property, right, the fact that the square root of two does exist um, in the real numbers is basically the heart of real analysis. And it's it's the reason that, that we work with this crazy set, right, that, that feels, you know, so real to people. It's like, obviously, real numbers, that's what I've worked with my whole life. But now you're sort of seeing a totally different side of it and why we need to be using it in the first place. You know, um, when you were talking about uh, the real nu number that lies on top of the set of all rational numbers whose squares are less than two, um, that reminds me of the first truly incomprehensible thing that I saw in Baby Rudin was the idea of <laughs> Dedekind cuts. And uh, I went through Rudin using the Dedekind cut approach to an, uh, at least the uh, existence of the least upper bound property for reals. And I noticed that you don't. I think it's a plus to use the Archimedean property as opposed to Dedekind cuts, as the Archimedean property is much more easily understood. Yeah, in, in my opinion, Dedekind cuts is way too advanced for that stage of where you are in the course. When we learned it, it was like week three or four or something. We're just struggling with how to write a proof, right, with understanding, you know, re reviewing set theory. And now all of a sudden we're doing one of the most complicated proofs in basically the entire class at the beginning. So it just went ever over everyone's head. And I figure it's better to actually teach something of substance that people are going to understand, use that time for something productive rather than just like teach something It'll go over everyone's head for formality's sake. So instead of giving the proof of Dedekind cuts, I mention that it exists, right? I give you a reference if you want to look it up. But to me, I actually define in the book the real numbers as the set of rationals with their least upper bounds for all the subsets. Yeah, that's a reasonable way to go about it. What are the key results that the student needs to know about ordered fields and the relationship between the rationals and the reals? Yeah, in terms of the rationals and the reals, I mean, there's three sort of big properties of the real numbers that actually all follow as corollaries from the least upper bound property. So those are the, the Archimedean property, right? The fact that you can basically find any a, a number that's as large as you want. Um, the density of the rationals within the reals means you can find any rational number between two reals. And then the existence of real roots. Yeah. Uh, when you uh, were getting to real roots now and you show the roots of positive real numbers or positive real numbers, which is a really tough proof. So here's a general question. And you sort of touched on this at the beginning of our interview. To what extent do you think a student should memorize proofs or segments of proofs? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think sort of a, an age old debate. My personal opinion is that it's not as useful to memorize. It's you know, it's it's not even important to follow the flow of every step as you're going through the proof for the first time. It's more important to recognize the big steps that you're taking 
and how to replicate them in your own proofs. So to be honest, a lot of that proof of the, of the real positive roots is there essentially as a formality. You have to prove it in order to be able to move on. I don't expect that right away because it's so early on. Students will be able to understand every single part of it. The most important part is there are two critical things that we're doing in this proof that you're going to have to do as a student in a lot of other proofs in the book. A lot of the exercise can be given by the teacher. One of them is that you're using the least upper bound property, right? So you're showing that the supremum of the set E exists in the real numbers. And then if you want to show that, you know, this number Y equals X to the nth power, um, the way that we do that is say Y can't be greater than X to the n. It also can't be less to, than X to the n. Therefore, they must be equal. So those two techniques are things that come up a lot, a lot throughout the rest of the course. And I really want to make sure students understand that that's the important part of the proof. One of the things that students always do is um, they're always looking at homework problems that come from the book, and they're always really just depressed to find that the questions on a real analysis exam generally seem to be nothing like the problems <laughs> that they were doing. Um, because each problem tends to be sui generis. It's not like in you're taking a calculus course, once you learn how the skills of differentiation or solving related rate problems or something like that, they have a commonality. But unfortunately, problems in real analysis don't until you really get the whole overall picture. And Rudin has a spectrum of problems from relatively easy to really difficult. How would you recommend a student approach these problems? And does your book help to do this? Yeah, I absolutely think it does help the students solve those problems. I think a big part of it is learning that this kind of math you're going to be doing from now on that's proof-based rather than algorithmic, right, really requires creative thinking. It's not just plug and chug. It's not like you learn the formula or the algorithm and then you just do it over and over. It's that you do learn the basic skills that you need, how to prove, what are the theorems and definitions you're going to be using. But once you have those basic skills, you need to be thinking creatively. And so I actually intentionally did not include any end-of-chapter exercises in the book. All the exercises I have are phrased, framed as fill-in-the-blanks problems that you do throughout the chapter. So, and a lot of them are simple. They get more complicated as the book goes on, but to start out with, it's essentially, you just saw one half of proof, sort of one direction of the inequality, let's say. Now to prove the other direction, why don't you fill in the blanks? And so really make sure you solidify your understanding of the proof. To me, that's really important to make sure, again, you understand what were the key steps that we used so you know how to replicate those later on. I think, um, you know, in terms of the, the resources in the book for solving those problems that your teacher is going to give you, that Rudin or your other textbook is going to give you, the conclusion, the last chapter is basically the best resource. Because what I do is I list all the key concepts from each chapter, all those, those cruxes and those important techniques that we use in the proof that you're going to have to use on your own. And then I also list some of the other general techniques that we cover in the book that you can always apply to doing proofs, which is you work backwards, right? You sort of start with the end result, narrow it down further and further until you end up with something simple. You use all the available information and assumptions that you have, right? So if the, the, the statement of the theorem makes any assumptions, you could bet you're going to have to use that assumption at some point in the proof. And then, of course, to work with the simplest examples first in order to understand a definition. So instead of just learning a definition and then applying it to the proof right away, understand what the definition really means by working with some examples. Um, all those techniques, I think, apply, you know, throughout every problem you're ever going to solve. And that's really what I want to be able to present in the book. I think that all those principles are really good ones, and they're basically ones that I've followed. And so it's amazing that someone so young has learned what it took me so long to realize. But anyway, the next thing that comes up in the book is something that I'm sure that the students regard as a breather. It's the chapter on the complex field in Euclidean spaces. Mm -hmm. I think that analysis students generally find this material easier simply because it's more algebraic in nature and students are more comfortable with algebraic thinking than they are with thinking using the key concepts of analysis, such as the rigorous definition of limit. You're exactly right. I think a breather is the best way to think about it. That basically we just, after set theory, which is nice and sort of simple, we went into the really hardcore, the three proofs about um, the real numbers. And now you're sort of taking a break again. Um, and it's a chance to practice all these techniques you've just learned with material that might be relatively f familiar and also will certainly come in handy later. Yeah, I felt the biggie of this chapter was the Cauchy-Schwartz inequality, which is tremendously important, not only here, but throughout a lot of mathematics. And I'm a huge fan of mathematical induction as a proof technique. I probably 70 to 80 percent of the papers that I wrote used it in one form or another. Mm -hmm. So I was delighted to see the inductive proof. But did you give any thought to the using the shorter proof, which uses the discriminant of a quadratic? 
Yeah, it's a great question because I actually did give it thought. But my problem with that proof, the one that, that Rudin actually presented, is that it seems like the crux of the problem using the discriminant of the quadratic was essentially pulled out of thin air, right? Like a lot of his proofs, you don't really yeah. know why he decided to approach it that way. And you just think, wow, it works. It feels like magic. Part of my, yes. my book, I don't mean to be cynical, but it's about breaking down the magic, showing you there's never any magic behind this. Someone worked really hard to figure out that that was the key step and then just made it seem really simple. So the, the I think to me, the way to get to that crux and to get to actually the, the same crux of the proof you do it also in in proving it by induction so i actually looked up a few papers that, that sort of explain the koshi schwartz inequalities proof by induction i had to fill in some of the gaps myself um but basically by going step by step through that process you see okay here's where we get stuck and here's where you have to use this missing step and figure out what that missing step is and then once you finish doing my proof and maybe you go back to rudin or back to your textbook or your, your lecture notes you'll see oh now i know why this is that magic step that he needed to use yeah you know it's very interesting and this is sort of a side note but one of the things in mathematics is that the big theorems get the names attached to them but there are also sort of little aha moments that nobody knows who did it like nobody knows who did you know who originally saw the discriminant of the quadratic here or and the one that I always use when I'm teaching elementary calculus is I wonder who first thought that the, who first figured out how to find that the integral of secant x dx is log absolute secant and x plus tangent x nobody yeah. gets the credit for it and somebody <laughs> should <laughs> anyway getting back to your book the next chapter in the book centers on bijections and i'm a fan of using words that clarify rather than obfuscate and i was very pleased to see you using the term one-to-one -one rather than the trendy injective and onto rather than the equally trendy surjective Definitely. I actually always try to include synonyms in the book wherever I can, just so students can look it up later. Um, and so they won't be confused if their teachers or other books use different definitions. But I agree with you, one-to-one -one and onto are, are much more, um, explain it much better. Yeah. You know, the big theorem here when you're going through bijections is the fact that a function is invertible if and only if it is both one-to-one -one and onto. And I'm not sure how big a role this plays in the early portion of the analysis courses, but it's critical in later analysis courses and in other branches of mathematics as well. So I think it is important to bring it out and emphasize it. Yeah, the section on bijection is actually a little bit strange in the sense that they're really important results and they're results that you're going to keep using for the rest of your study of real analysis, especially in topology. Um, but the proofs that you're doing aren't really similar to the other analysis proofs, right? It's stuff that basically comes when you learn real, uh, sorry, linear algebra. Um, and that's actually why I don't spend as much time on those proofs. I sort of sketch them out so you understand how they work, but really get to the meat of it, um, which, which comes afterwards. Yeah. And next we come to the idea of countability. And of course, the highlight or, you know, the uh, the centerpiece of countability is Cantor's diagonal method, which is used extensively through this section. And I think this chapter concludes what you might be called what might be called preliminary material for analysis. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And now we move on to some of the core ideas of analysis. And one of the things that uh, I noticed is that you do what uh, you do what Rudin did. Namely, what you start with is you start with the idea of metric spaces, topology, open sets, closed sets, the whole material related to that. Whereas I always thought that students had a little easier time if they went through sequences first, because that's a little more natural. And um, I I know, uh, I know you're following Rudin, so uh, so you would have done it this way. But normally, what I've done is over the years is I've sort of created a hodgepodge course in which I go through sequences first and then the topology. And I'm just wondering what you think of that idea. Yeah, it's an interesting idea. I guess from my perspective, um, a lot of real analysis is sort of learning to appreciate the beauty of the set of real numbers and why we need to rely on them in the first place. And so the structure that I use, which is similar to the, the, the order that Rudin uses, is essentially you do as little in real in the set of real numbers as possible. Most of the, the section on topology works in abstract metric spaces with some examples in, in R. Uh, but that way you see why R is special and why actually feels good when you get to use it with sequences, right? You say, oh, finally, we're back in the real numbers. Hey, I get to use all these amazing properties that I just learned and apply them to the sequences. 
Yeah, I think that makes uh, it makes a lot of sense. And I do have an appreciation for the uh, approach that Rudin has adopted. But I remember reading when Rudin first brought out the out the book in the early 50s, he said, this book is appropriate for an undergraduate course. And I'm thinking because essentially your book covers like the first four um, maybe four chapters of Rudin, maybe five, depends on if it's been restructured, but the book is 10 chapters, and I can't imagine any undergraduate course getting through all 10 chapters. It's a, as you pointed out earlier, it's a great book as a reference book. It's sort of a horrible book as when you're just learning the material, which is why I'm glad your book exists and why I wish it had existed when I was taking the course. Um, anyway, one of the first things that uh, you introduce when, of course, we're talking about metric spaces is the idea that a neighborhood is an open set. And it's the first example, I think, of how critical a triangle inequality is, and it gets the students to appreciate the value of the triangle inequality. Yeah, that's a great point. And then the triangle inequality gets used over and over um, throughout the study of topology. Yeah. And one of the things that I mentioned earlier that I like about your book is the inclusion of pictures. And one of the good things about the chapters on open and closed sets is the inclusion of pictures. And when I draw it, I always draw a picture prior to any theorem. And I think that the fact that Rudin's book has no pictures is a big minus. Absolutely. I think another thing that Rudin and even some teachers gloss over is that you just magically inherently know how to visualize these things. But if you've never visualized them before, you need to see a picture so that you can learn to start drawing your own pictures. And I think the big danger in it that I'm trying to avoid is that sometimes you can draw a picture that actually gives you the wrong impression, right? You learn about two different sets or spaces intersecting and you think, oh, and in my head, I'm just imagining that they can only intersect this way. And you sort of ignore the possibility they can intersect a different way, right? And that there can be points that are left out in, in ways that you hadn't thought about. So actually the way that what I try to emphasize in the book is to draw something as many different ways as you can. Not just the first one that comes to mind, but to see lots of different examples of pictures to make sure your picture accounts for all the possibilities you may be missing. You know, that is an incredibly important point, the idea about how a picture may mislead you. And even though uh, you talk about connected sets later on, um, when you first start drawing circles to indicate, you know, to illustrate sets, you get the idea that if you take the intersection of two connected sets, it's going to be connected. And then you realize that, well, if you draw them as crescent moons intersecting, the intersection of two connected sets is not connected. And this is one right. of the first instances where something can mislead you. But in this chapter, I thought that supplying the missing links and proofs was a very good idea because this chapter contains some proofs that will be difficult for students seeing it for the first time. And so the idea of supplying the missing links, I think, was of considerable help. Exactly. Some of the arguments that, that come at the beginning here are used over and over again. So again, to me, it's critical that you understand them fully, you understand these big steps in the arguments the first time you're learning them instead of skipping them over so you can actually use them as part of your toolkit later on. Yeah. Now we come to the chapter on compact sets. And now we're starting to hit ideas that the students have absolutely never even considered before. And I like the idea of having a section on compact set appreciation, because when I was taking the course, the course was taken, was taught by an incredibly talented mathematician. Oh, you know, he just, you know, he followed the book and he did good proofs and he was a very, very bright guy. But why are we doing this? And compact sets are only appreciated <laughs> later down the road. And in addition to which, the basic way that uh, compact sets are defined in uh, are are defined um, by means of open covers and subcovers. It's extremely difficult for students who often think that a subcover consists of subsets of the original cover. I don't know whether you, any of the students in your class, uh, think that, but a lot of mine do. Yeah, any of the students, me included. That's actually what was the, <laughs> the inspiration for sort of having this bonus chapter that really focuses on understanding the definition and the way that, that covers and finite subcovers interact. So before we even tell you the definition of a compact set, right, what is the point of hearing like, oh, a compact set is one where, where every subcover has a, you know, every cover has a finite subcover. Like, great, but, but what does that mean? Why, why do we care about covers in the first place? That's sort of, I'm trying to motivate the, the definition of compact sets, but making sure you understand the definitions that come before it. I think it's actually the perfect example of one really understanding the definitions makes all the difference. Because if you understand them, the proofs are actually a breeze. But if you're still struggling with the definitions and the proofs just seem so magical to you. 
That is a great point for all students who take one of these courses and see them for the first time. And, and I'd sort of recommend to every student, at least when I teach the course, whenever I give a definition, what I always do is I give an example of something that satisfies the definition. And sometimes, I, in fact, the first day of class, what I do is I talk about triangles. Um, and I give them the standard definition of a triangle and I show examples of triangles, but I also show examples of not triangles and what they don't, you know, uh, which particular part of the definition of a triangle they, the examples don't satisfy. Mm -hmm. And I urge students to do that, especially in a course for analysis, whenever you have a, a definition given. Try to build a database of things which satisfy that property and also look at things which don't satisfy that property and why they don't satisfy that property. And at least it may not help you construct proofs, but at least it helps your intuition a little. Absolutely. I think, you know, if you have a good teacher like you, right, that those skills I like are imparted to, to you. <laughs> but sometimes teachers sort of gloss over that or just assume that you already have encountered it. And so yeah, that's exactly the emphasis of my book is teaching you how to, to do that, how to build up your own intuition by explaining intuition doesn't come magically. It comes through hard work and it comes through every new definition you have. You draw lots of pictures, you play with it, you sort of stretch it, you see how it fits into the definitions you know, um, and teaching you basically that skill that all mathematicians need of how to learn a new definition because it's not something that happens automatically. Okay, when we get to the chapter on compactness, you know, a lot of these chapters have one absolutely central theorem, and of course for compactness it's the Heine-Borel theorem. And it's important for the comfortable view of compact sets in Euclidean space, that they are the ones that are closed and bounded. Mm -hmm. But I've often felt that the easiest version of compact sets to work with is the characterization that every sequence has a convergent subsequence whose limit is in the set. And unfortunately you don't get to use that until you've learned about sequences later on in the next chapter. You hint at this at the end of the chapter, but limit points for sets are not as natural a concept as limits of sequences. Yeah, that's interesting. It's good to have a Heine-Borel theorem come first in topology because sort of that's that's why you're studying topology is it's all building towards that, especially the, the chapter on compact sets. And also the, the, the alternative sort of statement of it that you mentioned is actually a helpful bridge to help students understand the similarities and the differences between limit points of sets the ones in metric spaces, and then limits of sequences. So there's actually a, a theorem later, right? The one that if P is a limit point of a set E, then E has a sequence that converges to P as part of compactness. Yeah, you need, uh, you need that. And um, it's sort of a shame that um, uh, students only start appreciating the Heine-Borel theorem when they see that it makes certain proofs substantially easier. <laughs> exactly. You're sort of, I mean, that, that's the challenge of teaching anything is you say, trust me, this is going to come in handy later. And there's sort of this balance to be struck before between maybe I can show you a little bit of why it will come in handy later. Say, this is the motivation behind why we're learning all this, right? This proof would be so hard unless we had the Heinborough theorem. That's why we care about the Heinborough theorem. At the same time, you don't want to do too much of that because you're sort of always helping the student peek ahead. It's really easy to get frustrated and just say, well, now that I peeked ahead, I don't even understand what that is, right? It's even more stuff to learn. So striking the right balance there, I think, is important. You know, one of the things that I sort of appreciate your book, but all to, uh, that I appreciate about your book, but I think I would have found a little frustrating had it been delivered to me by means of a time machine, is that your book stops, uh, um, stops without a full coverage of what the first semester of a real analysis course is. And I'm not sure whether or not, you know, obviously time has passed, but when I took the course, continuity was covered and differentiability was covered. And um, they're not in your book, and I'm just wondering whether or not you've given any thought to writing Lifesaver Volume 2. <laughs> I would love to at some point. I think that would be great. But I, I made a very intentional choice to end the book where I did, sort of right when you're starting to learn about series, because I think there are a lot of sort of most college-level classes, maybe not the graduate-level ones, but the undergrad-level ones end around there nowadays. Um, and, and the second half of the material, you know, if it came in the same book, it might just be overwhelming. It's supposed to be a lifesaver, you know, not a dead weight that's dragging you to the bottom of the ocean. I think some people tend to see <laughs> books that are really large and just think, oh, no, there's so much to learn. Um, and so I wanted it intentionally to at least appear slim, right, and as, as something that was sort of a friendly companion. The second part of it is that 
by the time you get to those later topics, especially continuity, derivatives, integrals, and then even sequences of functions, um, it's honestly just more of the same, right? It all goes back to the original building blocks that you learned at the beginning of real analysis about the properties of real numbers, the topological definitions, and sequences. So if you can master those subjects, the stuff that comes later is, is actually easier. And I realized sort of, I remember having this breakthrough of like, even though the material is technically getting more complicated, it's actually getting easier for me. And I think that was because I was actually starting to understand the original definitions that I'd sort of glossed over and understand the, the skill set of proof techniques that I was picking up on. And the more I understood those, the more everything that came after it was was absolutely doable. So I don't think it would be necessary, honestly, to, you know, as much as I'd love to write volume two, it may not be necessary to cover continuity and derivatives in as much detail as I cover this introductory material because part of me teaching this introductory material is, is sort of a head fake, right? I'm not just teaching the material, but I'm actually teaching you techniques that are going to come later. And if you master those techniques and if you master these early definitions and some of the important theory the stuff that comes later, you know, you won't even need a lifesaver. You're going to be able to do it on your own. You know, I think that's certainly a valid comment. And when I was looking at the book, I thought that what you did, you know, I loved what you did. And of course, it's, you know, it's uh, a personal taste. But my only objection would have been that you had some material which um, Rudin includes, for instance, it includes material on perfect sets and connected sets. And the truth is, these will not come up in analysis. Perfect sets never come up. Um, I, I went through all of graduate school, and you never see a perfect set after Rudin defines it. And connected sets are important, but they really only start showing up in graduate level courses. And uh, as I said, this is, this is such a nit to pick with such a wonderful book. But I think that if I'd been, you know, if I'd been doing the, uh, been doing it, I would rather have seen at least a little bit on continuous functions and differentiable functions rather than the material on perfect and connected sets. But the fact is that you're sticking with Rudin. That's what Rudin chose to do and maybe yeah. rest in peace. Yeah. <laughs> that's a fair <laughs> point. Actually, so I include in the table of context sort of these stars next to different chapters where you can see what are the most important ones. That one is not starred because I think you can skip it and sort of you, you won't be missing any of the fundamentals that, that are relied upon later. At the same time, you know, I, I in addition to sort of just sticking with Rudin, making sure that students aren't left in the dark for that chapter of Rudin, I also think that, that both perfect sets and especially teaching about the Cantor set is really nice to do early on because it shows a, a big motivator for why you're studying real analysis in the first place. Besides for appreciating real numbers and why you use them, it's a really good example of when your intuition sort of breaks down, right? You look at how the Cantor set is constructed and you 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 see what keeps happening and you say okay the final set it's going to have nothing right there's going to be no points or there's going to be segments and you're like wait it has points but it doesn't have segments like how is that possible but at the same time you do understand that it's possible because mathematically you've been able to prove it for yourself so a big motivator sort of me of studying real analysis is is learning about how to deal with with infinity in cases where your intuition doesn't help where you know what what you think you know about math doesn't have anything to do with the the infinite cases. And this is a really good example of, of finally, I think it should be an exciting moment for students to say, now using everything I've learned, I've been able to solve a problem, right? The problem of the Cantor set that I would not have been able to solve just with the previous math that I'd known. You wouldn't have been able to think of the Cantor set. Right, right. With, I mean, only Cantor could think about that. Cantor, as a matter of fact, it's very interesting. Cantor is one of the few mathematicians who's hit for the who's hit for the cycle in that he has a concept named after him, a proof technique named after him, uh, and uh, sets and and types of things named after him. Brilliant mathematician. Yeah. Um, um, but anyway, we're now in the, uh, in the chapter on sequences. And, uh, as I said, I, uh, I use sequences. I start with sequences rather than open and closed sets. And I always start my analysis class by talking about the limit as n approaches infinity of one over n, which everyone knows is zero. Intuitively, we think of this as, as n gets larger and larger, one over n gets closer and closer to zero. And one of the things that I try to get the students to realize is that what the formal definition does is it uses the capital N in the formal definition as a way to quantify larger and larger and the epsilon in the formal definition as a way to quantify closer and closer. Yeah, I actually really like that, that idea of starting the class with that kind of thing. I started with the, the proof that uh, the set of rational numbers as holes because there's a technique you use in that proof that comes up a lot later. It's a really good example of sort of when you have this crux and how you figure out that crux. The one over n proof, I think, is a really good example also of sort of this intuition around infinity. When, is, when does the intuition hold? When does it not? Um, but, but sort of the way that I frame the n epsilon 
thing, right, which really, really trips people up the first time is basically saying it's a challenge, right? It's a challenge. Your friend is going to come to you with an epsilon and say you're going to have to come within epsilon of the limit. Can you find a, a capital N that's large enough, right, such that whenever small n is larger than it, you're going to be close enough to epsilon? And you say, okay, you know, if the epsilon is 0.5, yeah, I can think of an n that's large enough. Now what if epsilon is 0.2? Can you think of an, epsilon, an n that's large enough? And the challenge keeps going, keeps going, and eventually what you decide to do is just write an algorithm that given any epsilon your friend comes to you with, you're going to find an n that's large enough to make the limit within that epsilon. And if you can do that, right, if you can come up with the algorithm, essentially the formula for finding an n based on epsilon, then you've proved that the sequence converges. Yeah, that's, you know, that's exactly the right idea. And one of the things that you talked about earlier in the interview, in fact, at the very start of the interview, is something that I believe is extremely important, is that every teacher should be allowed to present material using the style that they find most comfortable. Because your personality, you know, some people choose to inject their personality into teaching or into writing a book, as you have. And some people just, it's just, it's like, well, this is before your time, but Jack Webb on Dragnet, Joe Fry. Friday used to say, just the facts, ma'am. And sometimes that uh, books do it that way, and that's perfectly okay. Um, when we come to the chapter on sequences, though, again, there's a, there's a theorem that you definitely want to get to, and that's a sequence of real numbers converges if and only if it is a Cauchy sequence. And that's a long, long road to get to that point. How do you help students negotiate this path? I think it's very important to introduce the definitions one at a time and to carry them out fully before moving on to the next one. What I mean by carrying them out fully is that you want to have all the examples and the theorems that come from them that you need before introducing a new definition. So I'd rather really understand help students really understand convergent sequences before even introducing a Cauchy sequence. So by the time you see the, the whole theorem right that relates Cauchy to convergent sequences, you understand the differences between the two and why the theorem is important instead of just sort of giving this like data dump of all the definitions at once, which is kind of what Rudin does, honestly. And so unfortunately, sometimes a lot of <laughs> teachers do, right? Let's do one at a time. Let's explain them. Let's see all the pictures, all the examples. And then when you see how two definitions relate to each other, as in that theorem that you mentioned, right, then it's sort of this big moment for you. And you say, actually, I feel confident, right? I think I know how I'm going to prove this because I'm excited to see how they're related. You know, part uh, in this chapter, the proof that every bounded sequence has a convergent subsequence is tied up with the sequential definition of compactness. And I think it's important that students, you know, students can be given this to appreciate in a larger context as well as the real numbers. Yeah, it actually goes back to what we talked about at the very beginning, the least upper bound property, that to me, the, the whole proof that a Cauchy sequence um, is convergent is essentially using the least upper bound property. And it's, it's sort of a parallel to that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and also, one of the things that, you know, uh, at the end of chapter three, well, chapter, I don't know whether it's chapter three in today's version of Rudin, but I mean, this thing is just so absolutely imprinted on my mind, from, <laughs> is that chapter three was sequences and series. And uh, sequences and series are critical and contain many important analytical proof techniques. And so I was glad that you emphasized all the key points, and especially when it comes to series. Um, because students get series the first time round when they're taking cal uh, when they're taking calculus, and of course, um, the purpose of series is not so much to emphasize the theorems on convergence of series, which sort of goes by them, but the idea to get to Taylor's theorem and related you know and related ideas, so that you can see the full glory of what calculus can do as far as computation is concerned. But um, one of the things that you know one of the things that's important in the idea of both uh, in the idea of series, which I think you have to get to relatively early for students to appreciate is the error estimates. And um, I think it's the error estimates in convergence of series that um, uh, tend to be slighted when one is proving some of the theorems about, uh, about series. I don't know whether or not slighted is the right word, but I don't think students appreciate precisely how important they are because they've seen the uh, error estimate for the Taylor's for Taylor's theorem, which quite frankly they plug a few things into and then don't completely remember. <laughs> yeah. But um, there's that error estimate for the alternating series, which I think is very important, and um, the proof of it is really nice. And yeah, it's interesting because I think the you know sort of as you move from 
high school to college level math and even then, you know, to grad school level math, it's it's all about becoming more abstract and more proof based. But at the same time, everything you're learning has all these incredible applications to, like you mentioned, computation. Um, and, and what's tricky for students, especially when they're learning this for the first time, is to see that rather than teaching the, the application, the practice, the computation, and then the theory, we actually start with the theory. That's part of being a rigorous math mathematician is first you prove that it works and you can apply it. But it's not how students are used to seeing things. A lot of times they're used to seeing, here's the application, let's practice, you know, plugging and chugging with Taylor's theorem or, you know, whatever it is first, and then we'll learn about how it works. Now, I hope that I can sort of help students negotiate this transition to see it's actually just as exciting to see why this thing works before we're even worried about applying it to actual, you know, hardcore numbers. Um, you know, one of the things that you uh, that you encounter in chapter three is something that went so over my head the first time I saw it. I just had no idea what was going on. The idea of limb soup and limb inf. And do you have any good ways to help students understand these concepts? Yeah, it's it, that was by far the most confusing thing to me. And actually, the, the chapter that I spent the longest working on, because I really want to present it in a way that would get rid of all these misconceptions. I think the mis biggest misconception is the name would imply that it's the limit of some kind of sequence of Suprema, right? Yeah. But it's actually the upper limit of the set of all subsequential limits, right? So it's actually a, a limit of a set of sequential limits. The best examples to, to help understand that are those sequences that jump above and below, right, the, the zero line, basically sequences that keep going, converging towards a point above and converging towards a point below because they're multiplied with the term minus one to the n. So you, you can see, right, it's not gonna converge, but you can clearly see that the limb soup is just the limit of the top points and then the limb inf is the limit of the bottom points, right? And you're like, okay, I understand, right? That's how these things are useful. Um, I, I, I think that another big question students have is why do I even care about limb soup and limb inf? But that example really illustrates why they provide more detail in a sequence, why it's sort of not fair to some sequences to just say, oh, it's divergent, right? But you really want to know it's divergent, but actually it's set of upper limits or set of lower limits do converge. Um, also, one of the things that's covered in Rudin in the chapter and uh, in series is uh, when you first take calculus, you're exposed to something called the integral test for uh, the integral test um, for monotonic series. And um, the integral test is fairly standard and Rudin can't do it because he hasn't hit with integrals yet. So I'd never seen this before I saw Rudin. And I must admit, you introduced a name that I'd never seen for it, the idea of the Cauchy condensation test. I always refer to it when I was teaching it. I talked about the thin subsequence test. So I was wondering where you found the term Cauchy condensation test. Yeah, I think it's just a term that he uses. I, I mean, it's very similar in the sense that it's all about how and actually a remarkably small subset of the terms of the sequence determine whether the, sorry, of the series, determine whether the series converges, right? That all you need is this two to the K term. You're like, that's so few terms of the series. Why do those even matter? But those actually determine its convergence or, or its divergence. Yeah, that, that term, that, that really, I, I can't actually say that it blew me away when I first saw it, but I, <laughs> uh, because I didn't understand it, like a lot of analysis the first time round through, but nonetheless, um, it's something you appreciate as you go later on. Yeah, and, I think a big part of the, what I intentionally try to do with the language of the book is try to get the students excited when they should be excited, right, and try to get them to understand why certain things are exciting. So I hope that, you know, from my tone and, and the humor I use and, and the way I write it, you can sort of know, hey, this theorem is actually a big deal I should stop should stop and think about why is it a big deal right why is it so exciting why is the author so excited to show me this theorem um, because that's really what makes all this fun is when you when you start to learn to identify which of these things are important and which of them are sort of just just uh, not filler but sort of like backup for the important things so when you do get to one of the important things it's a big moment for you yeah um, there were some again you know this is sort of uh, uh, sort of author's choice but there were a couple of things in Rudin that I present in my courses even though they're sort of advanced topics and one of them is rearrangements of series because I love the idea that rearrangements of if you have a uh, um, a a conditionally convergent series, you can rearrange it to get it to convert. Um, Rudin has a different version of this. He says that if you have a conditionally convergent series, you can find a rearrangement which convert 
given one number and another number below it, you can get the limb soup to converge. You can rearrange it so that the limb soup of the sequence of partial sums is the upper one, and the limb inf of the bot of the lower of the partial sums is the lower one. Yeah. But the the way that I find students actually appreciate most because you can do this very nicely is that. You can find, uh, if you have a, uh, a conditionally convergent series, what you can do is you can rearrange it in such a way that it converges to anything you want. And I, uh, I always find that a highlight and students find that amusing. Um, but anyway, you know, I'd like to say that uh, this has been an extremely enjoyable interview for me because it reprised a lot of, you know, a lot of the things that I enjoy teaching. But when you first wrote to me, uh, I found that you were, you know, that you hadn't become an academic mathematician. So here's an opportunity for you to put in a plug for what you're now doing and hopefully a plug for future projects um, that you have in mind. And also tell people who are interested how they can get in touch with you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for giving me that opportunity. I've really enjoyed the interview so far as well. Um, so actually, while, while I was working on the revisions to the book and the publication process, I was working as a management consultant. And eventually, I decided to give that up and actually turn down an offer to go to business school in order to start my own company. Um, so one of the startups I've been working on recently is a company called Dollars Ed. So kind of like driver's ed, but for dollars. And the idea is to teach young people, actually people who are my age, early 20s, just graduating from college, all the personal finance skills that you need to make important decisions related to your credit cards, investing, paying taxes, selecting insurance. These are all things that they don't teach in school and I wish I had learned. And I sort of, you know, it's nice I got to use um, all the educational skills that I developed throughout writing this book and, and working on it to apply it to another field that, that actually is similar to real analysis in a way. You know, the math involved with personal finance isn't nearly as difficult, nor should it be, but it's a similar topic and that people approach it with fear, right? A big, big barrier to people learning proof-based math isn't just the complexity and isn't just the, the skills that you need to build up through something like my book, but it's actually the fact that it's just scary and intimidating and people feel the same way about learning to invest, learning to, to pay their taxes, right? Is it, oh, it's too complicated, I'm never going to learn. And a big part of what I'm doing with Dollar Z is what I did with the textbook, right? Try to give it personality, make it sound like myself, make it funny, make it fun and warm and friendly and help people get over those barriers. So I actually have a fully working version of the app right now. It's available at dollarzed.com. It's D-O-L-L-A-R-S-E-D.com. And you can try out basically the beta version of the program for free. Um, and I really hope that people, especially at college age, even a little bit older, will be able to really benefit it and, and learn. You know, Once you're done learning all the abstract math and real analysis, then you can um, learn some, some really practical, useful skills. And how can our uh, how can our listeners get in touch with you? Yeah, I would love to hear from readers or professors, um, either one. Basically, anybody who's interested in getting in touch with me, the best way is just by email. So my email is rygrinberg, G, that's G-R-I-N-B-E-R-G, at gmail.com. So it's R-Y-G-R-I-N-B-E-R-G at gmail.com. And Rafi, thank you so much. I've enjoyed this interview, and I'm sure our listeners have too. Take care and best of luck. Take care. Great talking to you.